I feel like now that we both have the fancy mics, you're taking this like extra seriously. I'm, I'm honestly, I had like, I, I get, I was like feeling this, that very stressful day. And so I'm honestly just feeling very like tense right now. Very up. So I'm just trying to like get into like, like sort everything out and have everything calm. Okay. But it's that's coming chill. from a very stressful place. So that's why it's it's fine. Serious. We're very chill. Oh my god. It's time to relax. Oh god. <laughs> okay. Ready, Freddy? Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate factory. And I should warn you that one of us always tells the truth and one of us always lies. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello and welcome to Fans Labyrinth, the podcast where we discuss your favorite genre films and indie flicks. I am your host, Lydia, and this is my co-host. Joseph. Hi, hello. How are you? Hey, hi. How are you? It's like becoming my thing now. <laughs> Stolen mm. it from wherever it was from originally. I can't remember. My thing. Um... I've got nothing. I've got no segue <laughs> going on here. Um, so how are you? We haven't good. just been talking for yeah. two straight hours. No, I know. Well, as I was saying, like, I'm... Well, I'll, I'll ask you the question. Do you... We're 500 layers into the pandemic now. And mm. I don't even think about it as the pandemic anymore. But I do feel like my levels, like, of... Or is it that... Our levels of psychology, we just blame on the pandemic. Like, maybe I'm just feeling this due to unrelated reasons. Well, no, but. I mean, I think I think most people have come to accept that, like, the pandemic is a global trauma that's been afflicted on everybody. So, yes. like, I think, you know, if you already have mental health concerns, it's probably going to hit you harder. It's hit me harder. But even if you don't, like, this is a traumatic experience. And that's coming from someone in the generation where we literally watched like 9-11 in my second grade class happen on live television. Yeah. So like, <laughs> like we've had a lot of major global traumas happen in our lifetime. And this one is like the slowest burn. It's, it's, I don't know, like a really shitty Christopher Nolan movie. It just <sighs> keeps fucking going. Oh my like God. The worst version of Memento. Wow. What a random diss of Christopher Nolan. I like his movies. I like some of his movies. Yeah. I like some of them. <laughs> Memento's great. The Dark Knight's fine. That's what, oh my God. Those are two that are like, I'm not the hugest fan of. The Dark what Knight do you is great. Like? I love all the pretentious ones that people always oh like. I love Have Interstellar. Have you seen Tenet yet? And no, I haven't seen Interstellar Tenet yet. is like incomprehensible. At this point, I really feel like Christopher Nolan is just making movies. To shove his own head further up his ass. I love Inception. They, they make no sense. Like, they they don't make sense. His movies don't... They have no point. They have no purpose. They meander. They have no legitimate ending. Okay. It's frustrating. His movies are like a, a game of frustration. You're supposed to leave it being as aggravated as humanly fucking possible. And if you come out of a Christopher Nolan movie that is, like, made today, 
and you're like, I totally understood it. Like, you just didn't like it because you weren't smart enough for it. You're a fucking asshole oh because you didn't get it either. And I've heard that from yeah. everybody who's seen Tenet. They're like, you can't possibly understand it. It's unintelligible. So if you're going to say to somebody you didn't like it because you're just stupid, then you're a fucking idiot. Okay. Did you, were you the one Hot who's takes. telling me about a guy who would say he would only watch Inception once a year because his brain could only handle yes, it? Yes. Yeah. That was totally me. <laughs> that's yeah, that's that a funny me. little story. Like, that is, you're an asshole. Like, <laughs> Inception <laughs> Is such a dumb fucking movie. Like, I like Inception, too. Like, Marion Cotillard is amazing in it. Leonardo DiCaprio's fine. Really over him dating 22-year-olds when he's in his 40s, but that's his personal life and not related to his acting. He was fine in it. I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I love Killian Murphy. That movie was, like, purported to be better than it actually was. <laughs> it's a fine movie, but... <laughs> It's not blow the doors open like this piece of like avant-garde art house fucking cinema that's changed the course no. of everything. It's like a baseline pretentious Hollywood blockbuster. It's like two steps above like a fucking Michael Bay movie. Oh my god. Uh so today we're gonna watch I'm so angry about Christopher today, Nolan. Today we did watch Possessor, which we will talk about yes. at the end of uh, Brandon the show. Cronenberg's Possessor. Yes. Canadian Darling. Yeah, which is a cool Canadian look, and I'll be probably mentioning some other Canadian movies. But actually, this week, or like the last two weeks or whatever, I have watched a couple things that I really, really liked and I want to talk about and will be cool. What did you watch? I do want to get to that, but before that, I thought we would jump in with a thing that we've been meaning to talk about for weeks, but Fate the Winx Saga. I finally oh, finished. Oh, yeah. This was like right yeah. after our last episode. I finished it. So I forgot I'd even watched it. Like, that's how nothing that show is. Oh, really? That show is air popped popcorn. You know, it's great in the moment, but you have no memory of eating it. Yeah. I, there was a lot of people online that I saw, and this is sort of what got me to like the impetus to finish it, which they said, um, it's better than you expect. Like, and I do think it gets better as it goes along. I actually think the fifth and sixth episodes are pretty interesting but my god those first four episodes i'm like what are people yeah. seeing in this because it's and really it's like, messy look, it gets better as it goes along like i agree with you but that doesn't make it good mm-hmm. that makes it a show that's like below like baseline levels of acceptable in the first two episodes and then really hitting its stride in like deep deep mediocrity and then like kind of has a minimal apex moment where you're like, okay, so now we're like season two of Riverdale and that's as good as we're getting. All right. Yeah. Since you've like, I thought you were going to have a more positive one. I kind of wanted to just talk about my complaints about the show, but we'll say some positives first to uh, level it out a bit. I'm just in a mood to shit on everything today. (laughs) The five main girls. It's nice. It's a cool female forward cast. The original is like this Art Nouveau, whimsical-looking, fun kids show. And this new one is Dark Academia, following the trends of like 20 other shows. It's so derivative feeling. And all the boys are generic white guy, like nothingness. Do you remember... Okay, so do you remember when there was this whole like 
weird Hollywood blockbusters ran out of movies and they just started taking kids toys and making them into like really weird, intense action movies. Like you had all the Transformer movies, you had Battleship, like they were doing that with like children's games and making them all dark and like intense. I see what you mean. Yeah. And G.I. Joe, they did it with G.I. Joe too. This is the girls version of that. Mm. Riverdale and Winx Club and Sabrina. This is the fucking girls version of shitty Michael Bay action movies based on children's toys. Yeah. It's not even worth it. I, I do have this whole thing where I think the special, the, the guys who are specialists slash some of them are, are fairies they? are so confusing and nonsensical. Yeah. I don't get it. What's the difference between the special, are the specialists still fairies, but they just don't have I, powers? I don't know. Are they humans that know about magic? Like, what is it? What are they? I don't understand. My honest belief is that the world building isn't that strong and that what it really is is that they are focused on, like, the fairies and the woman. And then they're just like, well, we need Hawkeyes. And what can Hawkeyes do? They can fight each other and be, like, soldiers. Yeah, I mean... uh, Which is the dumbest move, but it's like, I... Sure. Yeah, and, like, there are female specialists. Oh, is there? Yeah, there were. Oh, I didn't notice them. There were, like, three different female specialists. There's not that many. They don't have like I. They don't really have lines, but they are mm. there. But I only remember one actual character who's like a male fairy, other than a professor. Yeah, and it's just all girls. Yeah, all the girls get the powers, but they're not allowed to fight. And all the boys get to fight, but they're not allowed to have powers. There's something yeah. very weirdly segregated about it, and they don't have wings. And honestly, I felt ripped off. Well, you, you saw the ending. Yeah, at the end. But like, that's, that's the one. The, the most boring character. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, obviously, it's leading into the later seasons. And that the fact that probably each of them will get their wings. Spoilers. Also, was it not weird to you that it was only six episodes? Yeah, I thought it was a bit of a weird choice. It's like they thought it was going to be shit. So they're like, oh, we'll give you six episodes. So. Uh, <sighs> We're going to assume that the episode structure is coming out, but I've been talking about my Criterion Collection connection. You're like, need for it to be perfectly cohesive. (laughs) Well, I okay, because I had said in that episode that I'd go and watch Tokyo Story, and I did. So, But what I didn't know, actually, and what I found out right after watching it was actually that it's not only like a well-liked movie, but it's actually made a lot of top lists so much so that i actually found out that apparently this was on wikipedia sight and sound magazine asked a bunch of directors and it was voted the best film of all time which i had no idea going into watching it wow so i would like to know who the directors are i don't know i did not look you know because i'm like i'm not saying it's not the best movie of all time but if you're asking like you know all we've got here is like lars von trier and Mm -hmm. i'm gonna take another Another shot at Inception, Christopher Nolan. Oh my God! It's like I'm like I don't know. I like Lars von Trier too, but I don't. I, I don't know. You know. So it's a 1953 film, directed by Yasujiro Ozu. I was saying in the previous episode too that Ozu is sort of the second most famous Japanese director after the guy who directed all of the samurai movies that everyone knows, if they know Japanese cinema at all, which is Seven Samurai. Oh. Yes, all, all these ones. Know that one. So, Ozu is very 
slow-paced family drama. That's his sort of style. He uses still life imagery to be symbolic of things. And that's part of this, uh, a sort of thing that I've heard that he's famous for. Tokyo Story Wait, is about... Still life imagery? As in he'll... A famous one that I've seen is that during one of his movies, uh, you see a very tense emotional moment and there's a cut to just a picture of a like a scene of a vase that's not moving. Nothing's happening. Oh, okay. And it just has okay. like a five second look at the vase and then it cuts back to the emotions of the scene. And many people apparently have commented on what the vase cut is about. Okay. So he has this sensibility in this movie. So I'm not saying that like there isn't meaning behind that. I've never seen the movie. But like, do you ever watch those kinds of like really pretentious art house movies and see these like really like out of place shots? And you're like, do you think he just threw that in there to make people ask the question like, oh, I wonder what this means. This is so deep. It must have such deep meaning to it. Or like if it actually, you know what I mean? Like if it actually has yeah. deep meaning. And it just, I'm just thinking of it because of that stupid fucking Casey Affleck movie Ghost Story with Rooney Mara, where there's a literal eight minute scene of her eating a pie. It's just eight straight Whoa. minutes of her slowly eating an entire blueberry pie. And people have talked about this scene constantly because it's so it's so arduous. It's so long. Mm-hmm. Like she eats the pie and then she throws up. And then she goes back and she eats like the rest of the pie. And then she slumps on the ground and keeps eating pie. And it's eight straight minutes. And the director commented on it and he was like, that was my most meaningful scene. Oh my in God. The movie. It had yeah. so much meaning to me. I'm, I've never been more proud of anything that I've created. And everyone's like, go fuck yourself. You put this in here to make us sit, like sit here for eight minutes and watch her eat a piece of pie. What does it mean? Yeah, I completely see what you're saying. And I think there's, I'm trying to remember the exact famous saying, but people say there's, you know, there's the color of a curtain in something. And then they asked the creator and the creator said, no, it just is that color. Like that's just the color it was. Right. And so of course that happens from time to time, but you know, we're going to talk about possessor, a lot of choices in styling, in, in cinematography and things are purposeful in our atmosphere and do mean something. So there is, it can go either way. And I'm not even saying, like, people forcefully reading deeper meaning into it. Like, when you watch Nightmare on Elm Street and people say the blue robe means, like, that she's dreaming or whatever because blue is the color that, like, represents dreams. Like, that's people putting a meaning on it. And I don't even think they're wrong to do that. Like, there's Mm. nothing wrong with analyzing media in that way. It's the same way we do with literature. I'm saying, like, do you ever wonder when a director says this is so meaningful because if they're just making it up afterwards because they're being asked about it and they don't want to have to turn around and say like, no, I just thought that vase looked cool. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Uh, Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I'm not sure where to to go with it. So I'll just, (laughs) I'll just say my experience with Tokyo story. So uh, I actually went into it thinking without knowing this, that actually was a more obscure I thought it was just one of Ozu's, but apparently it's considered his masterpiece, you know, because he's, he's, he's directed a lot of movies, but... His magnus opus? Yeah, basically. Magnum opus? Yeah. But, uh, so it's about two grandparents visiting Tokyo from far away and staying with one of their grandchildren and then meeting a couple of their other gran- grandchildren while they're there. And the sort of flavor of the movie that you get to see right away is they they get in... And the kids are there and they're like, oh, mom, I have to, 
you shifted all the stuff in my room. And they're like, yes, we had to make room for your grandparents. They're staying here for a few weeks. And, and he's like, oh, but I have to study. And they're like, you don't study. You're just complaining. <laughs> and he's like, thanks. And you get that sense of, isn't this sort of true, though, that like, the kid doesn't care. The kid's never met these grandparents. And when they do meet, they have all the pleasantries of all the mandatory politeness, rituals, greetings that you have to do. But the kids sort of quickly reach other. They're like, nah, I'm just going to go to my room or nah, I'm just going to do this thing. And the father keeps, he's a, a neighborhood doctor and he says, oh, I've got patients to go check out. We we don't have time to go out and see the city with them. Just figure out something for the grandparents to do and all stuff. So they participate in the rituals of what's needed for the grandparents, but they don't connect with them. And as the movie goes on, you basically see that it's their daughter-in-law who actually was married to their son who died in the in the World War. I think this is a 1953 movie, so I think it's World War II. Okay. But because the son died about eight years ago. And so I think he died because many characters talk about their children dying in the war. So that's a part of this movie and this kind of depression that a lot of people are in. But she, she's the one who shows breaking the boundaries of the politeness and the rituals and the mandatory fixtures of life. She's the one who says, well, actually, I do feel a connection to you. And she actually talks to the grandmother and they sort of give advice to each other. It's like, you've got to move on. It's been eight years. I, I loved my son and I'm getting over him. You loved our son, and but you, sh you need to move on and get remarried and do these things. And she's like, I don't know, like I'm kind of okay where I am, um, but maybe I can help you two out. And so they actually develop a bond of genuine connection. And so I think as the movie goes on, it's this very subtle interplay of characters. I really want to connect to what I actually think is so beautiful in the movie. But once you're in the right mood, it's a kind of realism of the disappointments in life or, or the hopes too. But the way in which people kind of have their own things going on. And, you know, when these grandparents come in, they're just already living their own lives. They have their own problems. And as much as they follow what's dictated by society, as, as in we should care for them while they're here, the grandparents aren't having a great time and they end up leaving early. Uh, and they're like, mm. no, you have to stay. Like, it's part of the proper time. Like, you can't leave. And haven't we all been in that situation yeah, so often? Yeah, the sort of, like, mandatory pleasantry. Where you feel this, like, the obligation feels stronger than the wanting the real thing to happen, wanting the genuine connection to happen. And the background of this whole movie, being the World War, being the, the the deaths of so many characters that are talked about. For example, there's a drinking scene with the grandfather where he meets some old friends and they're all talking about how they just kind of want to drink and have a good time because talking about their dead sons and daughters is not pleasant. They're just like, our lives are kind of not great, but, you know, what can we do? And, and they don't love their children as they are now. They're like, our children are not as successful as we thought they would gr grow up to be. So what do we do? Mm -hmm. I thought the movie was so powerful by the end, but I was so shocked to find out that it was voted so highly because I did not expect that coming out from the end of the movie. I did notice that some of the acting feels off to me, and that just might be a modern uh, viewing yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's probably you're taking it from a modern lens because, I mean, having yeah. not seen it, but if you even when we've watched um, Hitchcock, yeah. when we watched, you know, Psycho, the acting. Which is another, is, Psycho is another movie that's often on top list. Yeah. And the acting in that isn't bad, but it's it's so completely different from yeah. what we see now. It's I mean, they're coming. And I think that's the difference. Not yeah. that long out of like the silent film era. They're still fairly recent into talkies. They're still doing a lot of production type theater acting where it's quite a bit more intense. And they all have that weird. Um, what's it called? The mid-Atlantic accent. Right. Yeah. 
So like there are there are some distinct differences stylistically into how acting is is done in that era compared to now that makes it feel less natural, more stilted. Yeah. But I just want to leave with this feeling that these movies, both Stalker and this one, have been very hard to watch in a certain way. I had to split Stalker into two. And this one, there, I was really struggling the first 30 to 40 minutes of the movie. And I just thought, this is not a movie for me. But by the end, the experience, I mean, these movies are make tops of lists for a reason. The experience is so powerful in the after effect. And I feel like it's a movie I'll think back on quite often. Just the, the beauty of the characters felt so rich and strong. Mm, yeah. Yeah, sorry to bring the mood down there for a bit but uh thanks yeah um middle of a pandemic yeah just just depressing me yeah even more than i already am <laughs> so but it was that yeah so that was a cool experience for me anything been going on for you any profound experiences or the opposite i mean now i feel dumb I, like, yeah, I, why do I, I always that's, seem I was like to segue because I was like, I don't know, because you're saying that you haven't like, watched that much. I'm the most intelligent person in the room. <laughs> yeah. So what have you been doing? You fucking. Pleb? No, no. <laughs> um, so I'm going to do a book. Oh, that's see, that's a cool turnaround. I haven't been watching much, but I read a book. I OK, so I love to read. You know, I love to read. You love to read. We're very literary people, different tastes, but we like to read a lot. And with the pandemic and my job, I just, I haven't been able to to take the mental and emotional energy I hear you. needed to really like get captivated by a book. So I haven't been reading for a while and I have so many books on my, on my to be read list. My sister-in-law got me a book for Christmas. And I finally sat down and I started reading it and I ended up devouring it in two days. Nice. It's I that's mean, a good way look, to get back into reading. Though. It's not a challenging book, right? Well, no, like but it's, that, yeah. it's, sh- it's short. It's only like 400 pages. But it's, I would have loved uh, if you were read, like only 800, you know, just a casual. Oh, my God. Wouldn't that have been amazing? <laughs> would have sounded like such an asshole like you. <laughs> Turning so off. The book that I <laughs> Um, so the book that I read is called The Suspect. It's by uh, yeah. Fiona Barton. Okay. Uh, she's written two other books um, called The Child and the Widow about the same character. And look, it it reminds me a lot of the Nordic noir books that I read, you mm-hmm. know, like the Scandinavian crime thrillers. Very similar kind of vibe to like a Camilla Lackberg, if you like her style of writing. Uh, and it's about a journalist, an investigative journalist in London and she works relatively closely with a particular they're called I mean it's England so it's he's a detective but he's a detective inspector okay. is the title in New Hampshire and she he's one of her sources for a lot of her stories so two girls are on their gap year mm-hmm. after high school and decide to take a trip to Thailand and they go missing in Thailand And that's the beginning of the story. And you see this investigative journalist starting to, like, try and pump up people's attention to it, trying to solve the mystery, trying to find these girls. And she's working with the New Hampshire detective inspector because he's on the case as well from the parent side when they reported the girls missing. 
Okay. Um, so the thing that I love about these types of books in particular is, and what makes it so easy to get kind of captivated by them is that while you'll have a central sort of character that ties all these pieces together, and in this case, it's the investigative journalist, usually you have multiple narrators. Right. Okay. So there'll be a chapter to three chapters where it's just the investigative journalist, and then you'll flip and you'll have a chapter or two where the like main character that you're following the narrator is the detective inspector and then you move to the mothers and then you move to kind of flashback to the past before the girls go missing and the Whoa. one of the girls is your narrator okay. and she's narrating through essentially her emails um to her friends and to her family and her sort of journaling on this trip so you're seeing the before and the after and you're trying to figure out that middle range of what happened to them so my only really familiarity with this exact genre is, of course, The Girl with Dragon Tattoo. And I'm talking about the movies in particular because I didn't read the books. But and that has the two narrator kind of feeling. And I'm not sure. Yeah, it's very common in Nordic yeah. noir and crime, crime thrillers in general have a tendency have a tendency to do multiple narrators. It mm -hmm. keeps them really fast paced and engaging and it makes it easier to sort of draw out that mystery, I think. Yeah, well, and there's a connection to if you're always just following the detective and only from their point of view, right? Often they're male, often they're from a very institutional point of view. And this allows you to have from the perspective of the victim, from the perspective of people affected or from the perspective of someone yeah. involved in trying to take revenge or have some other angle on the story, like maybe someone who, you know, has some other goal or from some more other organization. So I think that's actually a really cool mix up. Yeah, I would say like, if you like that idea and if you like crime mysteries in particular, Nordic Noir is my personal preference for like crime genres because I find... They have, like, in my opinion, the perfect mix between interpersonal drama and really analytical crime solving. Oh. So, yeah. So you get the interpersonal dramas of, like, you know, your investigative journalist and, like, the walls that she's butting up against in her own life to try and follow this story or the, like, family members of the detective who are frustrated with the long hours of his work and it's causing arguments and making it difficult for him to solve the case. But then you also have this, like, really analytical perspective, especially in Nordic crime thrillers, of the actual solving of this mystery, where it, it almost feels scientific. It's so, like, methodically laid out. Whoa, okay. Um, this is not an angle I, that I've I would heard say. before, I don't think. You notice it in particular. It's it's not so much, I would say, in a Fiona Barton because it's it's not a Nordic noir, so it's not really taking that sort of like cold and detached angle to the to the crime. But in Stieg Larsson's uh, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo series, you very much get this sort of cold, analytical, very scientific play out of this mystery from one of the characters, and then you have a more passionate, investigative, energetic kind of mystery mm -hmm. solving from another character. I guess what I'm trying to say is that like watching the mystery unfold, it's hard to guess because you're flipping between these two like polar opposite sort of emotional ranges, but watching the techniques to solve the mystery is like almost scientific that it makes it really interesting and engaging. Mm. And this one in particular, what did you think of it? I loved this. Nice. <laughs> I mean, it's it's chewing gum for sure, um, but it was a really nice way to ease back into like trying to get excited about reading. Yeah. 
the most exciting part of a mystery is when you start putting pieces together as you're reading it and making sort of guesses at what's going to happen. And I had messaged you when I was reading Mm -hmm. it and there was, I was probably like 300 or 280 pages in, like close, close to the end, about two thirds of the way in the book. And like things were starting to come together for me. And I made a guess about what was going on with the suspected killer. Mm -hmm. And I kept reading because I was hooked and I was like, I need to know. I need to know if I'm right. And it turned out I was right. (laughs) And it was like the most cathartic, like satisfying feeling I have. I have had in a really long time. And I was just so, so excited that I had to finish. I finished the book that night yeah. when I messaged I, you. I talked to you. Oh God, I talked to you about this so much, but it's like, because I I don't love the world of crime, but I love mysteries, and so it's such a frustration to me because it's like that feeling you're talking about. I feel like I would chase that as like my candy too all the time. I just I don't like detectives. I don't like the world of police. I don't like crime yeah. and murder scenes. And see, and so I just that's struggle. why I think. I have a feeling you would like, I mean, it's still crime, but I have a feeling you would like this book or the Camilla Lackberg books because it's an investigative journalist. Hmm. So it's not as much from like, you have a detective in there, but they're really like furthering the female investigative journalists investigation. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a lot less of that like, hyper diligent police work, very boys club kind of stuff. And it's more like newsroom and passionate writing and yeah. all this shit. So e- it's yeah. Like- even the journalist place, it's another environment I don't love. It's funny. Cause I mean, the, the example that I do love is I, when I was, doing, I loved Dan Brown books. They were my like true, I could just devour them books. And there is a kind of mystery, but it's that connectedness yeah. to the world and to that. And he's an academic always with the academics. I'm in love. That really gets me going. There's it feeling like the mystery connects up to some, even though it's a total lie in those books, but connects up the to Illuminati. some, yeah, like some real weird real world thing. Somehow that works for me. And often in sci-fis, there's sort of mysteries and stuff too. And I get excited for those or in fantasies where there's some mystery to the, how the world works. And when it's a mm. world level mystery, for some reason, it attached me more when it's just a group of people and someone died. I'm just like, well, this is only relevant to that group of people. It's it's a dumb distinction, but I there mean, is a feeling maybe, of yeah. Maybe it's because I'm a woman and like I'm constantly concerned right. about being murdered. I'm I'm not. You know, it's like my my everyday occurrence. That like maybe that's why. I mean, so many women these days are obsessed with true crime, and I yeah. truly think it's because like we've been, t- especially in the millennial generation, we've been taught since we were children like. You know, use the buddy system. Don't go out alone Mm -hmm. at night. You know, men are going to drug your beverages or attack you. And like home invasions happen all the time. Like it's just all of these constant fears that are very real and very true. But they're so deeply ingrained from like the moment we hit puberty to like through to our adulthood that I think we just become so obsessed with like these true crime books and, and podcasts and documentaries and mystery thrillers and we're like you know what look if i'm gonna get murdered i'm gonna figure out what clues to leave (laughs) so that somebody will solve my murder because like apparently every woman is gonna get murdered at some point oh my god 
but the reading thing too, as we've talked about many times sort of off the air, but I bought a new armchair. I'm trying to get into a better environment to read and I have so many books I want to read. So I started this one called Conversations with Friends by um, Sally Rooney. And mm. I really want to watch the show of her other book, Normal People, which is out there and sounds like a really cool uh, love story type thing, but I don't think it's available on any Canadian streaming service yet. Yeah, the, the book, I started it. It's interesting, but I still just, I can't get into that immersion mood. And so I'm very jealous of your ability to pick up a book and be like, two days. I just loved it. I'm into it. I'm like, because I'd love to have that <laughs> feeling, but. Uh, That's why I picked this keep one trying. up. It's like, I have more challenging books. Like I still have your copy of House of Leaves, mm. which I will return to you <laughs> after I read it. Uh, and you come back to our hometown. <laughs> but I, I still have that to read, which is arguably a, a much more challenging book. I've got some fantasy books to read, which are typically more challenging for me to get into. And I think, I don't know, I've got I've got a few Stephen Kings to read. I've also, so there's a playlist on Spotify. And hold on, let me pick, pull it up. I've been putting this on while I read. Oh, another trick. And it really helps me. Yeah. And it's called Reading Chill Out is the podcast well, name go. on Spotify. Or oh. not podcast, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. playlist. Like a yeah, playlist, yeah. Yeah, and it's all it's all like instrumental, but it's well, perfect. Yeah. A ton that's... of different, yeah. Yeah. It's a ton of different songs and it's a 7 hour long playlist mm -hmm. and none of the songs like they all I definitely flow into try each that other out, well, honestly. but they're all different and they're all really relaxing. So it's perfect. I don't get distracted by background noise because, you know, I live in a super old building. So mm -hmm. there's always like a lot of motion and banging and moving around and steps and stuff. And it's just very soothing. It's very relaxing. And I can read and I don't get too freaked out being alone at night in my apartment <laughs> reading a murder mystery. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. I mean, honestly, it sounds like you you figured out the way you made it. Yeah. I have been working hard at trying to make that work but I have been good about other types of habits so I'm glad that's true you've been better than me yeah a lot of things are going well for me it's this reading thing it's because it's the one thing that I don't do during my work day a lot of, like my my walks per day I do during my work day and I had to extend my work right. day for it but it felt worth it to me because I love it in the middle of the day it just really breaks up my day in a nice way so what I've been doing is because I I go to bed a lot earlier than you mm -hmm. because I yes, have tell to get up people. a lot earlier than yes. you people how much healthier well, you are no. than me. It's not me being healthier. I have a normal nine to five job. I have to. So I go to bed a lot earlier. But what I've been doing is instead of going to bed at like 10 o'clock at night or 930 ish, I'll go and get ready for bed and get into my bed at 830 or nine. But I'll have my little moonlight on on my bed or on my bedside table. And then I'll have my lamp on on the other side of the room. And I'll put on the playlist and I'll be like, I'm just I'm going to read yeah. until 10 p.m. And then I'm going to go to bed because that's yeah. my bedtime. So I force myself into my bedroom space. Yeah. For I think I got to do that. Yeah. An hour earlier. I really want to talk about one more thing that honestly was like Tokyo Story was an amazing movie that afterwards I felt like it's something that I'm going to stick with me. But this show, I was like, I have not seen a show that has truly made me felt like it's moving television forward and is like amazing for a while. And this one, I know you have your own concerns about it, but it's the one I was telling you about. I May Destroy You, which is about sexual assault. Mm, 
Right. Um, so this is a really cool little tidbit about it. So I basically wrote down only one name for it, Michaela Cole, because she wrote it, directed it, created it, produced it, and stars in it. So it's impressive. That's the show. And it is phenomenal. I like I I just cannot even express how much that is going to be my opinion about the show. It's on HBO for us. BBC One is the original sort of airing network. Uh, so it's a British show. And it's about a woman named Arabella, played by Michaela Cole, who has just written a Twitter novel called Chronicles of a Fed Up Millennial. And people on the street will even like quote lines to her and she'll be like excited and like quote pieces back to them. And she has successfully landed with a literary agent and she's working on her second book. But now that she's sort of in the traditional sphere, she's struggling to write because now she's like, I actually have to have a plot and an actual thing instead of just kind of a an autobiography of everyday occurrences that has really interested in her and connected with her social media audience. So the first episode is about a night she goes out looking for inspiration, enjoying time with her friends, and she gets raped. And she doesn't know what happened. She was blackout drunk during it. Or, well, you find out she was drugged uh, with presumably Rohypnol. She goes to police station, puts a report out, and is trying to remember the face of the person who raped her, but she can't. And this is the sort of premise of the show. And still trying to write her book, still trying to figure out her way in the world. The show, it has so many different avenues that are amazing in it. So I I don't know where to start. So I think I'll just do two or three of the, or like two-ish of the small things and then get to the big thing that I think is so amazing about it. The small things is that the side characters each get different avenues of connecting with stories of real life in the party sphere, in the millennial sphere, and what people have to deal with. So for example, one is a gay guy who's dealing with other closet straight guys and all the character all the main characters are black in this and that's a big thing so in the black gay community this masculinity complex is very strong and this difficulty of connecting up and so he's in a grinder culture of just meaningless sex with people and one of these guys takes advantage of him and doesn't penetrate him but sort of keeps him down on a bed and dry humps him and when he goes with Arabella to the police station he asks whether that might be you know, something that shouldn't have happened was non-consensual. And they said, yes, people don't really realize, but that is just as bad in many cases as other types of sexual assault. That's the kind of story that is in the sidelines that are often happening. What's hard to express is that even though I'm talking about the dark themes of the show, the show is actually full of exuberance and excitement. And I got through it so quickly because the show is actually, the plot moves at a like raring pace. You are constantly going to parties, constantly going out there and connecting to this, their psychologies and their experiences of of life. It, the way you're explaining it reminds me a little bit of The Rules of Attraction. Mm, mm-hmm. That movie with James Vanderbeek. A little bit of a less dark uh, Requiem for a Dream too. Which again is Rules of Attraction. Yeah. Like that's the easiest way to define Rules of Attraction is a less dark Requiem for a Dream yeah. or a less murdery American Psycho. Yeah. But it gives me that kind of vibe, the constant partying, the drug use, the like misunderstandings around what 
you know, consensual sex is and what consent means in a sexual atmosphere. And then like the challenges of discovering sexuality and like the issues around consent that comes with that. That's Rules of Attraction. I love that movie. This seems more intense around the themes of sexual assault. And I am not saying it's probably amazing the way that you're describing it. I just I don't know that I could watch that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Some people, you know, it is this is a deep trigger warning um, type of show. And this is difficult now because we're we're running into spoiler territory. But I want to get at least some conception of, of a taste of what makes it so powerful by the end. And so I'm going to go down one line that I think is only medium level spoilers. But in case you're afraid of that, you know, skip a couple minutes. So Arabella meets a guy who's going to help her with her novel in the middle of the show. And uh, he's a guy who's went to Cambridge and knows how to write. And he's like, you're in with actually one of the best editors in the industry. And he's like, you should be extremely proud to be under her and, and that your novel has a very good chance of being very successful with this publishing house. And so you should get it out there because she's been delaying getting it out um, and, and un- unable to write. So he's like, I'm going to help you. They end up in a sexual relationship and he takes off his condom mid-sex. That's assault. Yeah. So she's like, oh, like, uh, you know, why don't, why didn't you have to throw out the condom? He's like, oh, I thought you knew that I took off the condom mid-sex. Like, you must have felt it. You must have done these things, right? And she listens to a podcast the next day in which they talk about how this is a thing guys on forums are talking about, a strategy to do this kind of thing. She realizes that this is another form of abuse, sexual assault. And to spoil it even a little bit further, she she gets up at a podium for the uh, literary publishing house she's with. And it's a little like new writers sort of workshop where she's going to speak out some of her uh, or read out some of her new novel. But instead, she gets up and after learning this, he's part, I forget exactly what his job is, but he's part of that company in some way. He's like an intern or something for them. And she gets up and just says, this guy's name is a rapist. He did this to me. And she explains the whole thing that he did and how she figured it out. And her friends like sort of videotape him as he shamefully leaves the room during this thing. And that's the kind of power the show brings, these moments of explanation and her own experiencing things. I'm I'm still painting it in a way that makes it feel very issue-oriented. But what's crazy about the show is that it very much is a real character study. The characters feel so real and each make deep mistakes as they're going on too. For example, her best friend lies about what she said the night she was Arabella was raped in the sense that she never mentioned that she sort of ended up helping her be alone that night, ended up allowing for her to be alone at the bar. And she never mentions this. And she doubles down, probably from the guilt she's feeling inside, on helping her out and constantly doing self-help things with her, constantly doing self-care with her. And actually, you see her inside conversations, pushing away other friends and not allowing them time with Arabella so that she can be the one to help her out of this situation. And these kinds of complicated relationships we have with our friends is another avenue that the show brings. And I mean, I can't, I, I definitely can't spoil this part, but I just think the ending is, that's what truly sold me on the show. Just phenomenal. 
worth watching for for it alone. By the end of that last episode, I was just like, my God, if I could give a higher score than five out of five, this is just something that did everything a show could possibly do. So I, one way, and actually a funny little story about it is, and you know, I should double fact check this or whatever, but apparently the creator of Emily in Paris posted a tweet that said that she couldn't believe that Emily in Paris was nominated for a Golden Globe or whatever the award was and not I May Destroy You. And she's like, what are people doing out there? <laughs> and I was like... Yeah, because Emily in Paris is garbage. I, I haven't it's watched it, but show. everything I've heard seems to be... I have watched way. it. I hate watched it. It's... I mean, I like Lily Collins quite a bit, actually. I think she's very precious, but... Oh, my God, that show... So bad, super offensive to French people. <laughs> it's like just makes them all seem like narcissistic assholes. The stereotype. And like her fashion choices are at the best of times questionable. Very questionable. <laughs> and like as somebody further to that, as somebody who works in marketing, watching her like claim to be this marketing genius mm. and she like starts this like Instagram and like blows up from only having, you know, 50 followers, or whatever, it's just her friends to having like 20,000 followers in a matter of a couple of weeks. And the posts that she's posting are so fucking dumb. Like they're just like a selfie or like a picture of a statue with like no interesting background or like camera angles or filters or anything it's just like a picture of a fucking statue that any tourist would take when they're in europe and she's getting like two thousand followers from these pictures and i'm like that's not yeah she's putting no hashtags on anything i'm like that's not how any of this works yeah it's, it's not how marketing works it makes us look stupid it just feels like a show that was just made to like some shows some movies and shows i almost feel like they have locations and they have things in the back to give you a spirit of like travel logging or like just to have like interesting visuals, but like yeah. there's no substance behind the scenes. And that's exactly the view that Emily and parents gave me. Well, and like, I think really what they were trying to do is like a sex in the city type thing for like millennials. Mm. And like, there's a lot of incomprehensible shit that happens in sex in the city. Sure. But, like, Carrie's job and the way that it functioned and the amount of money that she made made sense. Like, her apartment was amazing, but it wasn't that big. It was a pretty much a shoebox. When she got it in, like, the early 90s, it was rent-controlled. So, like, it made sense that she could continue to afford this place for as long as she did. And, like, she was a good writer. And she wrote a column in a newspaper, and she was good at it. Mm -hmm. Emily in Paris, she's supposed to be... She's supposed to have her master's, but she's also supposed to be like 24 years old. And she's supposed to be like, my God, not an entry level, like marketing coordinator. She's supposed to be like a marketing manager. Like I, I'm 30 <laughs> and I'm a specialist. And like, I've been doing this for two years, only two years I've been in marketing you're not a manager or whatever it was she was. She was like some higher level. I think it was manager or senior manager. She was like a senior marketing manager. Mm -hmm. You can't get that role and get your master's and do an internship 
and only be 24. Yeah. What? Well, yeah. That math doesn't work. The Whenever you have academics in shows too, actually, this is a funny one about Big Bang Theory that they originally wanted them to be grad students to begin with, but they saw a lot of grad student rooms. They like toured the, and they were so dismal apartments that they were just like, we're just going to make them professors and just have them having like skipped a bunch of like, they're all smart enough that they got professorships at like 27 or whatever. And just to have them so that they can afford like a decent apartment and have like a nice, the, you know, the friends conceit of having a beautiful apartment. And the- Yeah. And it's like, I I wouldn't even necessarily have minded if they had bothered to say something like, oh, she was like an academic prodigy. <laughs> so she graduated high school at like fucking 16 and went straight into university. Mm. Then I'd be like, okay, the math still doesn't totally work, but at least I can kind of see how you got there. But this is just like, she's supposed to have graduated apparently in a normal timeline, get her master's in what I assume is a normal timeline, Mm -hmm. get an internship, then become either a coordinator or somehow jump straight to specialist and then manager and then senior. It's like, that's not how any of that works. Yeah. So yeah, should we go on to Possessor or did you have more you wanted to discuss before we move on? No, I mean, I haven't really watched much else. I have two podcasts. Okay. I'm just going to rapid fire real quick. It's going to be outside the box media week with Lydia. One of them I just started listening to. I'm sure tons of people have heard of it who like true crime podcasts. Um, But I just started listening to Murder Squad uh, which is with Billy Jensen and Paul Holes. If you're a fan of My Favorite Murder, you've definitely heard about it. It's on their network. Paul mm. Holes has been on their show before. But um, Billy Jensen and Paul Holes both worked with uh, Michelle McNamara on her book about the uh, Golden State Killer. Okay, I do know um, of that book. You told me about it. Yeah, uh, I'll Be Alone in the Dark, I think. Yeah, that, that was book. a main to Netflix thing, too. Yes. Uh, well, no, not Netflix. It was HBO, maybe. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Michelle McNamara is uh, sort of like an investigative writer. Uh, she was investigating Iran, Golden State Killer. A lot of her work was used to eventually help capture the Golden State Killer. She was married to Pat Oswalt. Unfortunately, she's, you know, tragically passed away. But Billy Jensen is an investigative journalist who worked alongside her and actually helped finish her book with Pat Oswalt. And Paul Holes is a retired uh, police detective. Nice. Okay. Or homicide detective, I think. So they have their investigative podcast. I I would say their early episodes are a little clunky. They don't really have their groove. I mean, Mm. I think that's true for most podcasts. Uh, But once you get into the later episodes, uh, especially since they've actually uh, solved a few crimes at this point, their episodes and their listener base have resulted in solving a few cold cases. Wow. That's They've really hit a, hit a stride. Yeah. They're very impressive. Like their research is incredibly in depth. Uh, they're really interesting and they'd use, um, sort of like the internet detective kind of base. Uh, so they have forums, they utilize Reddit, they interact with the community, put feelers out there, have people looking for certain clues. So it's very like, a very integrated community. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's just, it's really interesting. It's really well put together. If you like true crime, it's a really, really great podcast to get into. 
I know this, um, just before you get to the second rapid fire, I know this is like a weird segue, but it's something where I've been thinking about a lot. When you were talking about the community connection to the podcast itself, I'm not sure we've talked about them before, but I knew a, a friend of mine who's really into these things called ARGs, alternate reality games, mm. where you have a group of people who together sort of first initial group designs a game that's played in real life and gets sends out invitations to people to play. And they'll have posters in the city, like a place like Toronto is a place where a lot of these happen. Posters in the city or little things hidden around, like maybe they'll put like a USB key somewhere or things like this, or and then they'll put videos and stuff online or things you connect to. And so some people work on it from their house and work on the things that are being discussed on the forums. Stuff, and some people get out and some people are even asked to become actors themselves or to do something to mess with the game for other people. And so there's this very deep interconnection between the people. And for some reason, I just think that's a very true to modern times kind of media experience with social media being so pervasive in our lives, this two-way connection being so thing. So it's very interesting to me to hear about this, like that even podcasts they're helped by, they're supported by their community in a way that isn't just listenership, but actually a feedback. Yeah, I think uh, I think another good example of that in in the podcast realm is uh, the No Sleep podcast, mm. which is an audio drama, but they take short horror stories um, yep. and act them out with voice actors. I've gotten you to listen to a few of them. Uh, the production quality is amazing. If you like audio dramas and you like horror, it's yeah going to be the best thing that you listen to. Um, there is a there is a paid option, but you can do the free option. You get three stories in each episode with the free option. So it's still phenomenal. But the No Sleep podcast uses a lot of listener sourced stories. Uh, so oh, you have the ability on their website to submit your own short stories to be acted out on No Sleep. Yeah, and so it has this like folk tale kind yeah. of, this is the most prominent one that sort of made the rounds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyone who is a uh, horror writer can submit through their website. I think it's nosleep.com. Uh, but if you just Google No Sleep Podcast, you'll be able to find it if you are a short story writer. Uh, and they will, it's a full production. It's fully acted out. They have amazing, amazing voice actors. And it's it's a really cool opportunity for any kind of like indie short story writer. Yeah. So that's my no sleep pitch, which I don't know why I'm pitching so many podcasts tonight. I wasn't even going to talk about that one. But that's another cool sort of concept of podcast community mm -hmm. uh, that they've created around themselves. And it's just a great podcast. The other one I was going to quickly mention is the new audio drama that I've been listening to. Uh, it's called The White Vault or White just White Vault, I think. I don't, yeah, I don't think you've mentioned the title to me, so this is interesting. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> takes place in very northern, remote Sweden. Okay, is this so about the sea vault? Of course, I love it. Is this the? No. Oh. So this is essentially a company puts out a uh, interview opportunity to a selection of experts in their field, asking them okay. to do a working interview for a job that these experts never applied for. And this company is sort of like a geothermal testing or research company. Okay, for some reason, this one really intrigues me. This is a very interesting <laughs> premise. They have um, geological survey tools kind of around the world. And one of the ones that they have is in uh, a super remote area of very northern Sweden. 
It's very Arctic, kind of just outside the Arctic Circle sort of area. Um, and this particular area, it gets polar bears. It gets really bad storms. It has like it's like mostly nighttime in the winter. It's very, very cold. Uh, so getting out there is is a real trek. And there's no way to remotely check in on the equipment. Okay. But there have been weird readings and they this company apparently suspects that their equipment is malfunctioning and may potentially require repairs. So they get a geologist, they have an IT expert, like a repair person, they have a medical doctor in case there's any issues, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then a, you know, Arctic survivalist. And they bring them all out to this uh, remote geological survey research facility to repair the equipment, check the data, and go through all of that stuff. It's interesting because none of them know each other. So there's a lot of isolation in it from there just because none of these people have any sort of like anchor. They don't have any sort of relationship with one another. So there's an immediate sense of isolation between them since they don't know Mm. each other. But then you have the greater isolation of the fact that, like, you know, there's six of them and they're in this hyper remote, super cold, very frightening landscape for a lot of these people. You know, one of these women is from Spain. One of the men is from London. They're very high traffic areas, usually around lots of people, very different climates. Uh, So you have that. But then there's this deeper fear of the unknown sort of thing happening where you know that there's polar bears, you know, there's horrible storms. But there's also something else happening where they don't know anything about this company. They never applied for this position, so they don't know how that they've mm. been offered it. Yeah, I like it. I like it. And they don't know why or what has happened to the equipment that is malfunctioning, but there's suspicion of it being tampered with. The thing. And the issue is, <laughs> the issue is this location is so remote and there is no one manning the research facility currently mm. because it's completely autonomous. So who could have possibly damaged this equipment? So when they get there, they're almost immediately snowed in because of the nature of the location. And it sort of goes from there. Very cool. It's very interesting so far. Really, really great voice acting. One of the voice actors is actually from the No Sleep podcast. um, David Alt. Connecting it up. Phenomenal. Yeah. Um, But I I highly recommend if you like audio dramas. um, I'm really enjoying it so far. Let's just dive right into the movie now after an hour of preamble just kidding why uh, do you always have to judge us i want it to be more conversational no, okay. oh my god, god we talk so long I, if, pick a lane oh pick god. a struggle pick a fucking struggle this episode is going to be so good for audio clips of me just bitching just shitting on everything <laughs> so we watched Possessor, which is a Canadian sci-fi horror movie directed by Brian Cronenberg, son of David Cronenberg. My God. That last it's name. it's Brandon. It's Brandon oh, Cronenberg. What did I say? Brian. Oh, weird. I have it down as Brian. Whoops. I did. I even wrote it down wrong. <laughs> so uh, fun fact before we get too deep into this, um, but Brandon Cronenberg released one of the most fucked up movies I had the pleasure of watching in my mm. early 20s uh, called Antiviral. Oh, yeah. I never saw it, but I know of it. It's it's not great. I'm going to be honest. It's not very good, but it's very fucked up. And this was before I, I even knew who the director was. I had no idea it was Brandon Cronenberg that did it. Now that I'm aware of that, 
it makes a lot of sense. Um, but it starred Caleb Landry Jones, who in literally everything I've seen him in always plays the like weaseliest, biggest fucking creep. Oh, he does it really, really well. Um, but he was in three billboards in Ebbing, Missouri. He was in Mother. He was like the creepy oh. brother, like uh, the Cain and Abel. Mm-hmm. He was like the really creepy one. Yeah, he's just he's a creep in everything. He's really good, but he's a creep in everything. That's it. That's yeah, well, and I am worse with the actors and actresses than you because you did know a bunch of stuff they were each in. But this has yes. a pretty cool cast, actually. So yeah. the main actress who is possessing people in it is on. Andrea? How did we say it? Andrea. Andrea. I don't know why. But it's like the most basic name. It's, it's why honestly do you keep not a name. Why to I, make it sound fancy? I honestly, I, I, it's just not a name I've heard. Uh, it's not a name I know of very often. It's Andrea Riseborough. Okay. Yeah. Who? Yeah. She was in Mandy, 2018's Mandy yes. with Nicolas Cage. She was also in that shitty 2013 Tom Cruise movie, Oblivion. Came out around the same time as that, like. Edge of Tomorrow, Live, Die, Repeat thing with Emily Blunt. Okay, yeah. And then... It's like only vaguely as good. I hope... I think this is who it would be, but this sort of... Who ends up being the main person she's possessing the whole movie and sort of becomes the main character is played by Christopher Abbott. Abbott. And then Sean Bean is in it and Jennifer Jason Leigh, who Uh, are both excellent, obviously, and everyone knows them. Yes, Christopher Abbott, you would know from It Comes at Night and The Sinner, the television show with Bill Pullman. Um, and Jennifer Jason Lee. If you don't know who Jennifer Jason Lee is, like you've been living under a rock. She's been in a million things. She was in The Hateful Eight. She was in, um, oh God, she was in Annihilation, Dolores Claiborne, uh, Single White Female, which came out in 1992. I think that was her, what, well, not her debut, but it was probably like a pretty big one for her. Came out in 92, year after I was born. But yeah, the sort of premise of the movie is that there is this machine which apparently allows someone to put it on and possess the mind of someone else. Although it isn't so simple. It requires actually quite an elaborate apparatus where it seems as you watch the movie that the person they possess actually has to have their skull drilled into in order to have some kind of implant, which then you can possess them with. So this isn't something that you can just do it to whatever. Yeah, it gave me it gave me sort of um, minority report means the Matrix vibes, like the way yeah. the technology functioned for the possessing and for like the acts that they were sort of trying to meet out through the movie. That's the vibe it gave me. I would say it's, you know, better than the Minority Report. <laughs> um, but it, but the technology has a really similar feeling. It's, mm. it's futuristic, as you were saying. It's, it's, it's futuristic, but it's, it's futuristic in the way that like technology is described in 1984, yeah. where it's got those like really mid-century modern weird curved lines it's all very like white but then very like you know transistor radio looking it's strange it's it is a very strange mixture and i'd say the the ones that most reminded me of is the apparatus in eternal sunshine especially since it uh has that kind of memory connection and then Mm -hmm. blade runner 2 the feeling of when they do the test 
has a similar kind of feeling where there is that analog kind of technology from the 70s-ish feeling of like what the FBI might have or something like this. But at the same time, you know, this is in the future-ish or around our time. Uh, So it is- Near future. Yeah, it's a a very strange mixture. And I think part of the purpose of that, sorry, I just wanted to go with this, is that- No, it's okay. uh, All the effects are practical and in a very cool way where the, not only are there practical effects, but the lenses and everything they're using is purposely done to give the whole thing this, as if it had to have been made in the, in the 1970s or something feeling, as though none of the possible yeah, computer technologies have. There's a very big, um, I mean, you can, you can tell there's a very big Argento influence on mm. this. And I don't necessarily mean solely because of the lighting, but it's, it's everything, right? It's, it's the cinematography style. It's the coloring. It's the lighting. It's the music. The way sound is specifically used to evoke feelings of, of tension or feelings of release uh, that gives it a very like Italian horror cinema vibe of like a Argento Giaio kind of movie. It's also similar to like an Argento or a Giaio style movie uses elements of hypersexuality mm. to sort of yes. create types of tension. And I, I don't even necessarily mean graphic displays of sexuality, although that those exist in all of these examples, but just the concepts of sexuality and how it can be used to evoke feelings of body horror. Yes. So going back to the premise for a second, what's happening is the main character seems to be working for a company which is assassinating people for financial or political gain. Mm -hmm. And so her jobs are to go into possess someone's mind, to kill someone, and then kill herself in order to clean up the crime scene. And they gain something out of this assassination. And so she has this psychologist played by Jennifer Jason Lee, who works with her that when she possesses someone and after it, it has this very matrix like thing, like you were saying, when you come out of the matrix and that water and the like the disgust of what's happened to your body in the time you've been sort of absent from it. And the connection you make with the person you're possessing's mind. And that will be a big theme that you're really in there with that person too. And the way your minds meld is not pleasant. Yeah. And so when they come out, they have to do a whole bunch of psychological tests to check where your mind still is at. And they have all these technical words, all these technical questionnaires and things to do. A test not unlike the Blade Runner test to check whether, uh, the person coming out of the possession is still in possession of themselves. And so that's what you see right away in the movie. You see her do one job and that one kind of goes well, but you see a kind of what seems to be a hiccup at the very end where she seems to put the gun in her mouth to kill herself. But then she, when she asks to be released from the possession, she doesn't kill herself. And so you're, you're a little bit confused as what happened there. And that becomes an issue. Uh, but then most of yeah. the rest of the movie takes place as she possesses her next job. And that is the character played by Christopher Abbott. Yeah. Yep. Who does a phenomenal job. And I, I was saying during the, it's like, it's a little like acting, acting, like they really yeah. play it because he's in tension with her mind. And that's part of the premise of the movie or not premise, the, the main plot. Yeah. I, I mean, he does, I agree. He does a really good job. I wish... 
And and maybe what they're trying to do is show how like seamlessly or the purpose of this is for her to seamlessly ingratiate herself into his life so that the people in his life right. don't sense that there's something off about him when he's being possessed by her. But I wish there had been a little bit more change so that when you can yeah, see the struggles happen, you can see the transitions as well. You can you can feel those different personalities as they come through. And I just I didn't get that as much. And it made it really challenging at some of the apex moments of the film where you're really supposed to be seeing that internal mental struggle yeah. between these two personalities. I'm just not getting that in a in a in a physical display. And that made it kind of tough for me at times. I still loved it, but Yeah, I agree. I think it's one of the, the flaws is that I could never tell when when one is supposed to be dominant over the other. Yeah. And look, okay, so this is the dumbest possible example I could give. But have you ever seen the movie Face Off mm. with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage? Yep. Yes, dumbest example I could give. But look, Face Off, for what it's worth, it's it's a shitty movie, but there are certain aspects of it that I think it does really, really well. And the premise of Face Off is that, you know, they change faces. That's basically mm-hmm. it. John Travolta and Nicolas Cage change faces. They become each other. Nicolas Cage is Nicolas Cage the whole thing. Like, there's no moment where you're watching it and you're like, oh my god, he's really taken on the John Travolta like affectation. I feel like it's I'm seeing John Travolta, but with Nicolas Cage's face. He doesn't do that. But John Travolta does a phenomenal job of doing his like weird soft-spoken bullshit and then when he is supposed to be like Nicolas Cage with John Travolta's face. Mm -hmm. He like amps up the crazy and just like surpasses Nicolas Cage's energy. Mm. And he really feels like he is Nicolas Cage. And that's, I think what was missing here. And I know it's supposed to be much subtler than the ridiculousness of face off. I, I get that, but I want to be able to tell in some way that even though, this character looks like Christopher Abbott. It actually is Andrea Riseborough. Like yeah. I, I want as the audience member to be in on that secret. And I felt like I was in the dark too. Mm-hmm. One thing I really want to talk about is the feeling of liminal space in the movie. And so I don't know if you know of this phenomenon that's taken over the internet recently, but this idea of pictures of liminal space. Do you know of this? No. Oh, really? So Think of like make me feel dumb. No, it, it's just a thing that's happening on the internet. But it's like a so think of like um like a Chuck E. Cheese or a Laser Quest or one of these weird party yeah. places and remove all of the people, the furniture, uh, and maybe just leave some of the t- like some of the tables and maybe the counter, and try to imagine what that room looks like. And there's a way in which you know it has that it will have a characteristic pattern on the maybe the ceiling or the floor, like the carpeting will have a certain look or, you know, on buses, they'll have like a certain special carpet look, but imagine the bus empty. And there's a way in which there's a feeling. If you want, if you look at these pictures online of what they call liminal spaces at the limits of our conscious, where we know and the familiarity of it, but if the absence of people, the absence of objects makes it give this very strange and nostalgic feeling. Mm, Okay. So kind of like, Kind of like those old pictures of like abandoned amusement yes, parks exactly. before they're like completely run down or like an abandoned high school gym exactly that's again. like missing yep. all of the sports equipment, that kind of thing. Those are exactly okay. what would be posted on these types of 
spaces. And I actually love those pictures. Yeah, it gives a very particular hard to define feeling. And this movie where it shows Toronto, the way the movie's filmed, and this is something that you kind of have to see the filming to understand this point, but because of the vintage lensing, because of the practical effects they're putting into the lens, and I was reading a thing that was saying that Brandon Cronenberg himself was testing out in some music videos he was making before this, different practical filming techniques with the camera itself. So this is no CGI. It's all sort of in there that the way focusing of the lenses happen, the way they kind of give this old tinge helps to get that sort of nostalgic off feeling, this little bit off. And with the technology and things too, this retro futurism all adds this effect. And what you were saying about Argento, I think is updated in a certain way here through this purposeful technique of connecting the color schemes, connecting the old technologies with this filming technique to really purposefully get an atmosphere, this very particular atmosphere that the movie maintains throughout. So two things. What you're talking about with the, what did you, what did you call it? Liminal spaces? Yep. Okay. So what you're talking about with liminal spaces and you know, as we started talking about it more, as you explained what you meant by that more, it it triggered sort of a memory of what I was, what was sort of on the edges of my mind, what this movie was reminding me about in a lot of ways. Mm. And I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a movie called Enemy by Jake Gyllenhaal. And no. not by Jake Gyllenhaal, starring Jake Gyllenhaal. It's by- um, I have heard of it. Yep. Dennis Villeneuve or Denise Villeneuve. And it, maybe the reason it's tugging at my brain so much is that it's also filmed in Toronto. Mm-hmm. But I would say the cityscapes, the way they film Toronto is really reminiscent. Those strange angles that they come down on onto the skyscrapers, the weird filtering over the city that sometimes makes it look very clear and very beautiful and at other times makes it look sort of dingy, Mm -hmm. almost polluted, is very similar in Enemy. I, I would say Possessor is the better film, especially if you're looking for body horror. But it evokes a really similar sort of strange feeling that's between um, an eeriness and almost dystopian feeling and a nostalgia and like big city kind of vibes. It's right in the middle of there, which makes it can make it feel very uncomfortable and simultaneously distant and familiar. And I saw I saw like I think this ends up in a similar space as what we felt with um Killing of a Sacred Deer, where the the reviews online or the feelings online are very torn. Because I understand that if someone's looking to just pick up a random horror movie and they pick this one up and watch with their family or watch with their friends or whatever, it's not fun. Like the movie is not, you don't start it up and you're not going to have a good time. It is really exploring the horrific aspects of horror. And the way people are killed in this movie is we were both looking away multiple times and just, I was... Like, I could not look at it. Like, some of the and horror like, was so intense. I am a longtime horror fan. Like, very long-term, passionate horror fan. And, I mean, I think, truthfully, there is nothing better in horror than practical special effects. Mm-hmm. I'm incredibly passionate about that. And this, you know, really uses practical special effects at a top-tier yeah, level. it's so seamless it's, in so many places. It's extremely beautiful. It's disgusting, but, like, the quality of work is so impressive. And the murders in this are so intensely brutal yep. and graphic. And the practical effects create a sense of tangibility 
and realness. Yep. Like it's very visceral, very like real feeling that it's incredibly uncomfortable to watch. And it's not just uncomfortable in the way that like watching Hostel is uncomfortable because it's gross. Mm -hmm. It is gross, but that's not why it's so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable because it looks and feels so real. Like it genuinely feels like you're watching this person commit yes. a horrific, horrific murder, which I mean, ultimately it's amazing that they were able mm -hmm. to, to create this reaction utilizing practical effects in a modern day film. But it's, it is uncomfortable. Like, I, I mean, if you're going to go in and watch this, you're, you're not going to have fun. It's, it's going to be similar to watching something like Midsummer with the scene with the mallet. Yeah. Which again is, is incredibly graphic, but it's also just like in your bones level of like visceral. Mm -hmm. The somehow, the way the movie combines that visceral realism of the practical effects in everyday life, for me, intermeshed really interestingly with the fact of the practical effects that are used for psychological reasons. Mm -hmm. And so because a yeah. large part of the drama of the show is the fight, the battle of minds in the possessor and possessee. And that's shown in really effed up body yeah. horror ways through the practical effects. And, you know, that's something that you just got to sort of see it in the movie to, to see what those effects look like. Yeah, it's very difficult to describe. I, I mean, I think, as you said, one of and we've talked I think we've talked about this on the podcast, but the, the hallucination type scenes where they're these different personalities are intermeshing through the possession are in a lot of ways really reminiscent of, of particular scenes in Under the Skin. Yes, very much movie. so. But in a lot of ways, it also reminds me of, and this is a really odd thing that I'm bringing up, but the way this like sort of janky stop motion, quick cut together bits of practical effects that they do in those hallucination mm -hmm. scenes, like the I'm thinking in particular the melting yeah. that's happening at really fast speed reminded me of the actual videotape in the ring when she puts oh, it in yeah. where it's like these quick cut pieces of film stitched together and like this really strange imagery and like melting skin yeah. and all of these little weird things i got some hellraiser vibes the original with the when he's oh, I could see growing that. yeah i think now Out that the practical blood. effect is a little more mm, old cronenbergy style too like that has that kind of thing where yeah. things kind of look a little overdone like there's a little too much meat on them or too much practical effect looking what's crazy about this movie is i've never quite seen practical effects that feel so real all the way through now i'm sure i've seen them like without noticing but this one i know that they're real you know of course there must be you know prosthetics and stuff happening otherwise they couldn't be killing this person yeah. or maiming this person this way but it's invisible you just think of it as that person's body part flying off in the psychological scenes here, you, of course, know there's latex and rubber and stuff being used. But it's really realistic feeling to me and visceral feeling. And that's what's body horror to me. Yeah, it, it creates a very, a very seamless, uncomfortable effect where you're sitting there and you're watching it. And it, it, it stops feeling so much like a movie. And it feels like you're in a dream. It feels right. like you're in a nightmare and you're experiencing it so you know that this is an unreality moment 
But the effect that this movie has created with the lenses and the coloring and the practical effects puts you in this sort of nightmare state where it it truly feels like the abominations that your mind can come up with when you're sleeping. Yeah. The other thing I literally I I just noticed this as you know, as we were talking about, you know, the technology and the weird 1970s vibe, even though you can clearly tell, you know, based on the cityscapes and and the clothing and the cars and stuff that it's that it is modern times. I don't remember seeing a single person on a cell phone. Yeah, no, I think that was purposeful. The The lack of computer technology is very deliberate. I do as well, but it's just such a strange thing that I didn't realize how much of an effect mm-hmm. that that had. And while I agree that the like technology that they're using is very transistor radio looking, it's got these very Jetson kind of family vibes of like the white spaces, the curvatures of lines. I think more than anything, like had there been cell phones really used throughout the movie it would have taken away from the effect of the other technology you know Mm -hmm. like if they're sitting there using a smartphone but they have this like dial that they need to turn to be able to like possess a person it would have felt hokey yeah you know it would have felt a little silly the only thing i can think of that's like semi-modern looking was the kid had what looked similar to an ipad in his lap Oh, but it was I don't remember used that to operate that little robot. He had like a tablet yeah. sitting on his lap. Yeah, yeah. And the and you know the mom asked about it, and it operated the little weird, super fucked up, creepy yes. looking robot. That was something. So you don't actually see the screen on this thing, but you can tell it's in a tablet case. Mm-hmm. You just never see the actual piece of technology, and even the television that they had wasn't a television. It was a projector. On just on the wall. Yeah. And they're watching regular news, regular modern news, but on a projector, which again, that's a clever gives yeah. that very old school yeah. vibe. I even made a comment on it where it was like, God, do you remember having like that one friend or family member with the bougie house who had to have the projector instead of a TV? Yeah, I didn't think of that as being a way to get around modern technology. Because of course, with a TV, you'd have to like, obviously, a household today wouldn't have a CRT set, right? But it's like to do it to do a flat screen feels off to this movie's aesthetic. So yeah. very, very interesting choices uh, throughout. And I just, I love the the total atmosphere. It gives an honestly, except for what you're talking about where they don't act the two different characters um, well enough. Even that I can kind of forgive in the sense that they're supposed to be melding brains a bit. At least in the initial, A, in the climax, but B, in like that initial scene where she first takes over and then you first see him come back. It's like there's not nobody comments on it other than like, yeah. oh, you look a little sick. It's like, you know, there's not enough of a differentiation between these personalities that when it's supposed to be he's the dominant versus her, I feel like I should notice more. Yeah. But other than that, I can't think of my, like I honestly I just love the movie through and through. But of course, the love comes from a place that isn't. I didn't enjoy it per se in each moment. I just loved what it was doing. I could just see so many different things it was doing. And yeah. um, even later, this 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 time differential thing where he wears this like windbreaker. Oh, what? No. Is that what they're called? Yeah. Yes. Uh, for some reason, that sounds wrong to me. But from like the, the 80s-ish, this bright colored. But the way it juxtaposes color in other pieces of uh, other things in the scene, it just... I, I can't even explain it, but it just gives this 
colorscape, timescape, atmosphere-scape that felt so purposeful and yet so casual in the place. Like he just picked up that shirt well, out of think, a out of a bag. Well, he literally did. And that's what I mean. But. And I think that's what I that's I think that's what I love about it. It's like they're going, you know, for a goodwill kind of vibe, which is literally what happens. You know, he he steals it from a donation center. But Obviously, if they had to put him in modern clothing from this Goodwill drive, it would have been strange. It would have sort of pulled you out of the the entire atmosphere, because even though you're not seeing anybody in in hyper retro clothes at any point in the mm. movie, a lot of the clothing is like sort of hipster chic fashion. Mm -hmm. So it has like a moderately timelessness feel to it, even though you can tell it's modern, you can see the like aesthetic inspirations of like the nineties or the eighties in the clothing, in the modern clothing that they're wearing. So when he steals something from a donation drive, having it be more modern than what anybody was wearing previously would have been off putting, but making it more antiquated looking you know, really smooths things in where he looks yeah. out of place, but he doesn't look out of time. Yep. And for example, one thing in the movie, I wonder if we do have an answer that I don't think we did during the movie, but they have these strange, the fly looking VR goggles that they put on. Yes. Uh, and so the guy she's possessing's job is to put these on and look through sort of web feeds of people. And in th this day's job is to look at the curtains and explain the color pleats and shape of the bar, these weird traits. And then when there isn't curtains in the scene, you just move to the next one. And then you hear another character say, it's like, oh, you're on the list tomorrow for lampshades. And it's just like, I think there is, again, this liminal space feeling of like, what in the world is this non-job? Right. They never explain it. And I think that's sort of purposeful that it's a nonsense kind of the scape of jobs that we kind of know the type of job, but it's also you realize it's total nonsense. I so, yes, I agree, because he's and again, this is like they don't show laptops, but they're literally talking about looking through the webcams right. on people's laptops so you know that they exist, but you never see them. So you don't know what That's interesting this too, reality's yeah. version of laptops is, which I think is, yeah, it's a really interesting choice. It's it's another interesting way to get around the sort of modern technology thing. In my mind, and again, you're right, they don't explain it. But in my mind, it feels similar to the algorithms that we use to promote directed ads at people mm -hmm. through marketing. So the type of content that they interact with or the things that they look at or the things that they mention in the day to day, you get specialized ads for. But of course, in this reality, right. we don't have that kind of automation. Like you're not seeing that kind of automation anywhere in this version of, you know, our, our near future kind of world or alternate reality world. So I feel like what he's doing is the non-autonomous version of this where they're right. because they don't have algorithms, they don't have these computer programs. Instead, they have people wearing these goggles, literally spying on you through your webcam to determine what types of things you're interested in so that they can advertise to you better. Yeah. And I wonder if that's part of the themes in the movie, too, of so one of the more 
high-level themes or obvious ones is clearly that the possession and the way in which the minds are melding, there is, you know, you can take it in so many ways, but it's about how you can get trapped in other people, people can get trapped in you. We know of this like as a psychological thing in which codependency or ways in which we're taken over by people's lives. And that both her character and his character, you see an unleash of their emotions during the movie in different points towards their families, towards their things in which you don't know if that was actually their emotions towards their family. For example, with the guy, you see that he was in tension with the father that she ends up possessing him in order to murder for the sake of money. But that maybe he felt a visceralness or the reason she does it so brutally is in part with the intermixture of his emotions towards this man. And so there's these confusions in this part. But I think what you inspired me to think in addition to that is with what you're saying with the computer algorithm thing and the tablet with the robot thing is that there's a technological gap there too. That nowadays our relationship with technology are we possessing technology or is technology possessing us? Yes, exactly. And, you know, this, of course, connects right back to his father's works. And uh, what's the name of that super famous one that has to do with technology? Videodrome. Videodrome, right? And I don't like that movie that much, but thematically the movie's very interesting. Because, of course, like yeah. the gun and stuff literally hooks itself into the guy's arm and the feeds are coming in and there is the same sort of theme. But this this one feels, to me connected to so many things that I I can connect with today. Well, and yeah, and I think Possessor is doing for us what Videodrome would have done Probably, for yeah. you know, the generation before us when when that was really the level of of technology yeah, that makes they were perfect sense. looking at and it was and it was sort of more of a hyper modernized kind of view. But this is is sort of a a subtler, more insidious look and I like the idea of sort of you have technology, but you're you're putting humans in the front seat a lot more than where we are at right now because it makes it a Ooh, little bit yes. more of a of a tangible um, sort of analogy for us, right? Because it's it's really hard to explain the missteps or the dangers or the you know frightening aspects of autonomous technology, of AI programs, of you know, all of these like advertising campaigns sure. that are just done on the fly based on what you interact with on the Internet. It's it's difficult to explain why that's frightening um, unless you sit down and you watch like a documentary like The Social Dilemma. Mm -hmm. Right. And not everybody's going to want to do that. But something like Possessor, where it really puts the humans in the front seat, it makes you see things from the perspective of the insidious AI kind of autonomous technology mm -hmm and experience the sort of like creep factor where, okay, it's not a program that's showing me all of these advertisements. It's this strange man staring at me through my computer, looking at my house and everything that I do telling me what to buy. Right. And that's way creepier because it's another person doing it, but it's the same thing. It's exact. It's no different. It's just, you don't have some weirdo staring at you. So I think that's interesting. It forces you to look at it through a, a new lens and really, really feel it as a part of who you are instead of this intangible thing that's two steps or three steps removed from you. I completely agree. Final question here for me, at least. And with no spoilers, did you like the ending? I think 
and I said this when we were watching it, trying to give no spoilers, in the way that Inception left you asking questions that even though I don't think Inception is a perfect movie, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of dumb. It left you asking questions that were interesting. Yeah. I think Possessor was just a step shy of hitting that mark, that perfect mark where it doesn't tell you what's happening. You can make up your own mind. You can have your own interpretations, but it gives you just enough to be satisfying if you don't want to dig into it. Possessor just didn't, it didn't hit that mark for me. It was just short where it's, it's fine. It just needed 30 more seconds Mm, or like 60 more seconds. And I would have been, this is the best thing I've seen in years. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt that cut off at the very end too. I think the lead up into it is really interesting and something I'll think about for a while. I thought it was a lot. The ending was a lot and very interesting. So I liked that aspect. And then I thought they were going to go a little bit further, as you're saying, with the ambiguity or with the interest at the end. And they left it ambiguous. But I do feel, even though that's a cool way to end it, I... I'm missing that same thing you are. I needed some direction to feel compelled in to get my mind moving. Well, because I think I think the beautiful thing with Inception is like the way it ends. You truly don't know if he's still in the dream or if he did make it out Mm -hmm. because you don't see the spinning top fall. So you don't know. But you see him go off into the garden. He's with his family and he's happy. So you're left with a sense of satisfaction that this character is has some sense of closure, even if they're trapped forever, they're okay with it. And if they're not trapped forever, they got a happy ending Mm -hmm. in some way that they, you know, there's some satisfaction in that, right? Either, Either way, regardless of what happens, there's some satisfaction in it knowing that this character has made a choice and they're okay with it. With Possessor, you don't even get that. You know, there's no satisfaction. There's no, there doesn't feel like there's there's any joy left. There doesn't feel like there's any any closure to what's happened to this character. It's just, maybe it worked out. Maybe it didn't. You decide. So it's like, if you're going to leave that kind of level of ambiguity, which I'm fine with, and I kind of like that. I like being able to think critically about it and examine it and and come up with my own conclusions. But if you're going to do that, I think you need to satisfy the audience in a different way. You need to provide a different kind of closure. Otherwise, it's ambiguous and irritating. I was trying to think by the end, too, because I really liked Possessor. And I was trying to think, what uh, is another movie I've seen recently that I want to think of a movie that has the problem of doing the Possessor thing of being like an interesting, more indie, not meant for just entertainment type movie like really just like we're gonna do the thing i want to do artistically or whatever it is but that sort of failed but i couldn't you know a lot of these horror movies have actually been quite successful these artsy ones i loved killing of a sacred deer i liked under the skin all the ariasters you know so um because i do know a lot of people out there didn't like possessor even critics and so i can see how that it might not have gone in a good direction for them. But I wondered what my sort of ones where it's trying to do a horror thing, it's trying to, and I just found it bad throughout. I again would go back to Enemy, which overall I did actually really enjoy in the same way that I enjoyed Possessor, but I also understand why it was 
you know, frustrating in the way that it never, it never went as far as I think a lot of audience members wanted. You know, it, it never had as much closure. It never had as much of a climax or whatever it was. It was very subtle. It was very weird and atmospheric. It's, it's not nearly as graphic, but it definitely has a lot of similarities, I would say, to Possessor. Mm-hmm. I would say it's, it's probably one of the best performances from Jake Gyllenhaal I've seen, and he's been incredible in pretty much everything I've seen him right. in. That is the correct answer. But I, I, <laughs> I love Jake Gyllenhaal. I think that that is a really good match for the feeling that we're talking about with with Possessor, where it is overall a really excellent movie. There's something quite not quite there with the ending, and you can really see why it's not for every audience. Why not every person would would be as enchanted or engaged by it. I think you'd really like Enemy. Or you might you might hate it, but I think you'd really like Enemy. Yeah, I mean Jake Gyllenhaal's enough selling point, and I I love Villeneuve too. I think he's I mean he's done so many of my favorite movies recently. Although I had a lot of problems with Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which I am still seeing so many articles saying that how it's a genius movie that's changed the landscape, and I'm like, I I don't know it it I see that it's cinematically beautiful, but for some reason that's one that didn't work for me. So. That's the best example I can give of one of these grand movies with an artistic vision that, for some reason, didn't work out for me. Arrival, another villain of. Yeah, I loved almost all of this. I loved Incendies. I loved Arrival. I loved, um, there's one around Arrival that he also did that I loved, but can't remember it. Sicario? Sicario, yes. Loved that. Although, I watched the second one, which is not directed by him, but Day of the Something, um, did not. Mm, yeah. I mean, it was actually good as an entertaining movie, but it did not have the spirit that Sicario the original had, which I thought was interesting. There's an actual interesting message in the original. I actually liked Prisoners a lot, too. I forgot I, he did that. I, I do know of that one, too, and I still haven't seen that one, either. It's been recommended to me a million times. It's good. Yeah. It's quite good. So. Yeah, it's quite good. It's uh, Christian Bale, I think. Or Hugh Jackman. It's funny. We we that. often get on these director trends where we talk about like every movie oh, director. It's done. Hugh Jackman. I know. <laughs> it's Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal, ironically, who oh, did Enemy Jake the same Gyllenhaal. year he did Prisoners. Wow. Yes. That is strange. Yeah. He did Enemy with Villeneuve the same year that he did Prisoners. That's it for me. I think I that's my, I got everything I want to say about the movie. Loved it. <laughs> so yeah, that, that atmosphere, that's where it's at. Yes. Highly recommend Possessor. It is available for rental only Mm, right now. Uh, You can get it on Amazon Prime, uh, Google Play, and YouTube, I think, are the three places you can rent it. All right. Yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, I do have some new fun podcast updates for us. Yes, what are they? (laughs) So we now have our, we still have our Twitter. uh, So you can find us on Twitter at fanslabpod. Um, But we also have an Instagram now that I will be posting little video audio clips on. Our Instagram is fans underscore labyrinth. Nice. (laughs) Um, And then we have a TikTok as well, if you will bear with me so I can find our TikTok. It's at fans labyrinth pod. Um, So there's nothing posted on our TikTok just yet. But if you follow us there, I will be posting like short TikToks with clips from our episodes and fun facts and all that kind of good stuff. 
Yeah. Um, you'll also be able to find a link tree in our TikTok bio, uh, and that will take you to anywhere you want to find the podcast or any of our social medias. Nice. So we finally got a full range of social media out there. Yes. We. I am super hyped about the videos. The videos look mint. Yes. They're fun. They're captioned. So they're, you know, very easy to enjoy for everybody. Uh, and they'll just be like funny audio clips from episodes of the podcast. Sometimes it's stuff that we might cut out. So it'll be new and fun that you'll never have heard before. I'll mostly be posting stuff that's n- new upcoming episodes, but maybe we'll post some old stuff too. Who knows? Yeah, who knows where it'll go? Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.